It's a well-known fact of history that the ancient Romans practiced capital punishment by crucifying their victims. And they did this in order to discourage anyone in their empire who might have thought about challenging the laws and the authority of mighty Rome. In fact, Rome not only practiced crucifixion, but the Roman emperor Tiberius believed that crucifixion was absolutely the best method for punishing a serious criminal. And the reason he preferred crucifixion over other forms of capital punishment was because it prolonged the victim's suffering and therefore maximized his pain since it didn't give him any physical relief by dying quickly. See, crucifixion was just a very slow and agonizing, torturous way to die. It caused its victims the most intense pain imaginable before finally taking their lives. It usually took about three days for a crucified individual to die. Can you imagine that? Three days as they succumbed to suffocation due to not having enough strength to just lift their body up anymore and take in oxygen. So they suffocated and died. Three days. So horrible was the agony of crucifixion that the Roman government didn't even use it on its own citizens. That's to say that no Roman citizen was ever, ever crucified, regardless of the seriousness of the crime they might have committed. Crucifixion was reserved only for slaves and for non-citizens. Cicero, one of Rome's leading statesmen, summed up his culture's abhorrence of and disdain for crucifixion when he said this, it is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It's an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It's impossible to find the word for such an abomination. In fact, to the Romans, crucifixion was such a horrible way to die that even the word cross, even the word cross was considered unmentionable in polite society, in polite Roman society. Once again, speaking on this very subject, Cicero said this. He said, let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his, his eyes, his ears. In other words, crucifixion was such a loathsome concept to the Romans that they weren't even allowed to discuss the subject. But Rome's aversion to using crucifixion on its own citizens certainly did not discourage them from using it as a method of execution for others. In fact, living up to their reputation for brutality, death by crucifixion became the most popular form of execution used by the Romans throughout their vast empire in response to their enemies. By the time of Jesus, the Roman government had crucified, get this, had crucified more than 30,000 Jewish men in and around the area of Judea. In fact, there was one uprising in Israel, just one alone, which resulted in the Roman governor of Judea crucifying 2,000 men. And Josephus, the Jewish historian who actually worked for the Romans, he records that when Titus and the Roman army destroyed the city of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, they crucified so many men that they actually ran out of wood to use for crosses and places to set up those crosses. So when Jesus was crucified by the Romans, crosses of dead or dying Jewish men were a fairly common sight around the city of Jerusalem, because as I mentioned a moment ago, by the time of Christ, Rome had crucified about 30,000 Jewish men. However, although many Jewish men, many, many Jewish men lost their lives to crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ stands out as unique. And the reason for its uniqueness is because he's unique. And his purpose in dying was unique and distinct from every other man who ever suffered on a cross. And that's because Jesus Christ, though a man, fully a man, isn't simply fully a man. He's also fully the sinless son of God. Therefore, his death was not due to the fact that he did anything wrong or committed any crime against Rome. He hadn't caused a riot. 
nor was he an insurrectionist. On the contrary, folks, his death was God the Father's punishment for sin, but not for his sin, not for anything he had done, because he was sinless. No, his death was God the Father's punishment, his judgment, his holy wrath poured out for the sins that others, others like us, had committed. See, Jesus died as a substitute, being divinely judged by God the Father in the place of those who would come to believe in him. In other words, his death was for the purpose of being an atoning substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of others. While on the cross, God the Father inflicted his full wrath, his full wrath on Christ instead of inflicting it on sinners like us so that in addition to the physical suffering, which was something all crucified victims went through, Jesus experienced something far more painful, far more agonizing than anything that others experienced. He endured the spiritual, the mental, the emotional anguish of being utterly abandoned and forsaken and separated from the presence and fellowship of the Father. That is to say, Jesus Christ tasted the horrors of hell so that we who believe in him would never taste the horrors of hell. Now, for the past several months, every time we've observed the Lord's Supper, at least every time I've led in observing the Lord's Supper, we have studied Psalm 22. And that's because this psalm is a very detailed prophecy in which King David wrote about the future crucifixion of the Jewish Messiah. And he did this 500 years before crucifixion was even invented and about a thousand years before Jesus was even born. And what we have seen so far in our studies are the various ways that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy by suffering on the cross. David has told us that Jesus suffered in three very specific ways. Number one, he suffered by being rejected by the Father. I've just gone over that, but let me say it again. This was the most dreadful part of of our Lord's suffering, and it's what makes his suffering so unique, so special, so distinct from every other crucified victim. The psalm begins with the now well-known words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it, it sums up what the cross was, was really all about. God the Father abandoned Christ as he poured out his holy wrath upon him so that in fully paying for our sins, we would never be abandoned and never be forsaken by him. Christ did that, experienced that for us. Secondly, David tells us that Christ suffered by being insulted by men. According to verses 6 through 8, Jesus was so despised by the Jewish religious leaders and those who followed their leadership that even after he was placed on the cross, they stood around the cross and they taunted him making childish facial gestures and accusing him of being a fraud and having no faith in God, they blasphemed him while on the cross. And as we saw the last time we studied Psalm 22, the third way that David tells us Jesus suffered was by being physically tortured by his enemies. Using symbolic language, David speaks of the Roman soldiers who did the actual work of crucifying Jesus. He describes them as vicious, beast-like animals. He depicts them as ferocious bulls, as lions, as dogs, who were attacking Jesus while he was being crucified. They not only tortured him physically so that his body underwent anguish, extreme pain, but we read in verses 17 and 18 that before nailing Jesus to those wooden beams, they took his clothes off, they divided his garments amongst themselves, and they forced him to endure the shame, the humiliation, the degradation of being crucified naked as the wicked eyes of his tormentors stared and gloated over his embarrassment. Now, so far, then, it's been these three specific ways that Jesus suffered on the cross that's been the focus of our attention, because that's what this psalm has been about up to this point. But all that's going to change today. All that's going to change this morning, 
because what we are about to see, starting with verse 22, is that there is a sudden change in the psalm as the entire tone of the psalm is altered. Instead of the cries of anguish and suffering that we've been hearing from the lips of Jesus, and that's all we've been hearing up to this point, we're now going to hear him crying, but not in anguish, not in pain. He's going to cry out in triumph and victory, and he's going to praise God for what he is about to do, what he is about to accomplish. In fact, this change in Psalm 22 is so dramatic, it's so distinct from the rest of the psalm, what we've been reading up to this point, that one Bible teacher described the change as a song that's been transposed into another key, music that's lifted an octave higher. So the question is, what accounts for this dramatic mood change in the psalm? What is it that now causes Christ to start crying out in triumph and victory, and even celebration, while still on the cross, still suffering, still in pain. What is it? Well, watch this. It is the fact that just before his death, he begins to anticipate his soon-to-be resurrection and the glorious results and outcome of that resurrection. So what we are about to discover this morning is our Lord's inner thoughts. As Spurgeon put it, uttered in his mind, his inner thoughts uttered in his mind during the last few moments before his death. That's what this next part is about. And those inner thoughts all have to do with his coming, resurrection, and specifically what will take place as a result of his resurrection. See, as we listen to Jesus speak, as he speaks within his own heart. He himself is going to tell us why he was so looking forward to his resurrection. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing is that it wasn't because he saw his death and then the resurrection from the dead as bringing him physical relief from the torment of his suffering. That's not what got him so excited. No, note this, because this is important. Jesus saw his resurrection as the event that would bring about the proclamation of the gospel message with the result being that people would be saved from their sins. In other words, having just paid for the sins of those who would believe in him, he's on the cross, he's now paid for the sins of those who will believe in him. As death approaches, Jesus now is getting excited. He's getting excited about the fact that he's going to be raised from the dead because His resurrection is going to result in disciples preaching the gospel, which will bring about the salvation of lost sinners. And the specific kinds of sinners that will be saved, that becomes then the message of these final verses of Psalm 22, as Jesus declares that his resurrection will result in the salvation of three particular groups of sinners. This is why the author of the Hebrews, in writing about Christ's crucifixion, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he speaks of Jesus having the joy that was set before him. That's what helped him, he says, to endure the cross. For the joy that was set before him. What is he talking about? Well, it's the joy of the resurrection and the glory to follow as he returned to the Father in heaven, but also the salvation of those sinners who would follow the resurrection that helped Jesus to endure the cross. So salvation also of people who would come to know him as Savior. Now, before we actually begin to look at the various groups of saved sinners, we're only going to look at one today. We don't have time to look at all three. But we need to first see how Psalm 22 actually transitions from Christ's agonizing cries of torment and suffering to his cries of triumph for his coming resurrection. And I want you to see this transition. I don't want you to take it from me. If you see it yourself, this is what will build conviction in your own heart. You'll see it for yourself. You'll buy it. You'll say, I see this is what it says. This is what I believe. So I want you to see this. The transition begins to occur starting with verse 19 and continues until the first part of verse 21. But you, O Lord, be not far off, 
O you, my help, hasten to my assistance, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. Now, having concluded verse 18 by telling us that the Roman soldiers divided the various pieces of his clothing, our Lord now resumes praying to the Father for help as he asks him to come to his aid and come to to deliver him from the hands of those soldiers who were like wild attacking dogs and lions. Now listen closely. Two times prior to this, in this psalm, Jesus has prayed to the Father to deliver him, but to no avail. And the reason for this is because he was dying for our sins. While dying for our sins, there was no fellowship between he and the Father. There was no communion. There was no communication between God the Son and God the Father. He was dying, bearing the sins of the world, of our sins, and God the Father turned his back on him. So there's been no fellowship. Therefore, there was no response from the Father to Christ's prayers. Heaven was just silent because the Father, in his holiness, has turned away from his sin-bearing Son. But I want you to notice something very important that we see as we continue reading and come to verse 21, the whole verse, especially how it ends. Save me, Jesus cries out, from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. Note this, you answer me. Notice that after asking the father to save her from the lion's mouth and the horns of the wild oxen, Jesus now says, And I might add, for the first time in this psalm, you answer me. You answer me. You answer my prayers. In other words, as Jesus is about to die on the cross with death being imminent, he knows his alienation, his abandonment is over. He's paid for the sins of sinners. And he once again, he's aware of God's presence, of God's fellowship. And therefore, he is certain that God has heard his prayer and is going to deliver him. When I say God, I mean God the Father has heard his prayer and he's going to deliver him. However, his deliverance comes not in avoidance of death. That cannot be avoided. He will die. He will soon say, as we know from the Gospels, it is finished. So his deliverance is not from the avoidance of death, but his deliverance is that he will be raised from the dead. His deliverance is being resurrected. And it's from this point on in Psalm 22 that our Lord celebrates his victory over death by stating that his resurrection will be the spark that will ignite the gospel being preached and as a result, people being saved. And what really, what really excites the Lord, what thrills him, and therefore to excite us and thrill us, is that his death on the cross and his resurrection are going to result in a growing Christian church, a true Christian church, as more and more people are going to become converted believers in him and be added to his body. That is to say, out of the agony of his sufferings, God is going to save many, many people so that the church will keep on expanding and growing. And that, my friends, that's what thrills the Lord as he anticipates his resurrection from the death, that there'll be people who will be saved and they'll be part of his church, the body of Christ. See, folks, these verses are indeed a reason to celebrate because they reveal the great triumph of the cross. The Jewish leaders who hated Jesus and tried to eliminate him and all of his followers by crying out to Pontius Pilate to just crucify him, do away with him, and then taunting him while he was on the cross, they only thought they were successful in killing Christ and eliminating him as a rival for the people's loyalties. And then they thought it would all be over. His followers would just go back to their homes and there would be no more followers. That's it. But they were so wrong because Jesus is the one who triumphs. Because his death and resurrection have resulted in millions upon millions of people who have become 
converted, have become his followers, his disciples, believers. And so in the remaining verses of this psalm, the Lord mentions, he mentions three groups of people who make up his followers with the first group. As I said, this is all we have time to look at today. The first group being Jewish people. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Now, these words are quoted in the New Testament. They're quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. And there the inspired writer tells us very clearly that it's Jesus who's doing the talking. It's Jesus who's saying these words. So if Jesus is the one who's doing the talking in Hebrews 2, and here in Psalm 22, saying that he will tell of God the Father's name to his brethren, then it must be because he knows that death is not the end for him. He's going to live after being crucified. In other words, Jesus is saying that after his resurrection, he's going to speak to his brethren about the Father and praise him, praise the Father, in the midst of an assembly that will be gathered, and he will be there gathered with them. So what is this a reference to? What is this referring to? Well, it appears to be referring to Christ's appearances after his resurrection, appearances to his brethren, meaning those initial Jewish brethren disciples of his. See, the New Testament gives absolutely no indication that after Jesus was raised from the dead that he appeared to any unbelievers. He was with his followers for 40 days and then ascended back to God the Father. The only people we read about that he appeared to during that time were his followers. Or in the Apostle Paul's case, someone who was soon to become a follower as he was converted on the road to Damascus. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, it is Paul who speaks of Christ's appearances after the resurrection. And only believers are mentioned. Let me read this to you, starting at verse 3, going to verse 8. Paul said, For I deliver to you as of first importance, so this is what's most important, what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel message. Paul says that this is most important. And that, notice, he appeared to Cephas, that's another word for Peter. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, meaning some have died, but most are alive now at that time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, I'd like you to pay particular attention if you look back at verse 6. Because here we're told that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. That would be like this auditorium. That would be like the size of this auditorium. So, when did this happen? When did Jesus appear to more than 500 brethren at one time? And why did he appear to such a large crowd of his followers? Well, it would appear that the answer lies in what we're told in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. So why don't you look there? Matthew 28, 16 and 17. We read, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated When they saw him, they worshipped him. But note this, but some were doubtful. Some doubted. Now, we're told here that the 11 apostles, remember Judas is out of the picture, they proceeded to the northern region in Israel called Galilee. They proceeded to a certain mountain, which Jesus had previously said he would meet them there on that mountain in Galilee after he was raised from the dead. But notice that we read in verse 17 that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. This raises a number of questions. You have to think this thing through. Questions like, who are the ones who were doubtful, and why? Why in the world would they doubt? And what did they doubt about concerning Jesus? Now, we know that these doubts couldn't possibly have come from the, at that point, 11 apostles, because verse 17 says, 
they, the 11, they worshipped him. They had nothing to doubt about. They worshipped him. And besides that, they had already met with Jesus a number of times back in the city of Jerusalem, which is not anywhere near Galilee. That's in the southern or mid part of Israel. So there was nothing for them to doubt about concerning him. They had met with him. They saw him. They now worshipped him. No doubts. Therefore, we conclude there must have been others present there on that mountain in Galilee. There can be no other explanation. There had to be others there. And some of these people were the ones who had doubts concerning Christ. Now, I want to suggest to you that this, that this is the time and this is the place where Jesus appeared to the 500 plus disciples after his resurrection that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6. And the reason he appeared to them now is because the majority of his disciples lived there. They lived in the Galilee. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived in Galilee. And therefore, they had not yet, they hadn't had the opportunity yet to see the resurrected Christ prior to this. The New Testament tells us that up to this point, Jesus had met with his followers on several occasions, but only in the city of Jerusalem, not in Galilee. So now, here on this mountain in Galilee, he was about to meet with all of his disciples, over 500 of them. So why then? Why then were some of them so doubtful when they saw him? After all, weren't they his followers? Yes. Didn't they already believe in him? Yes. Why did they doubt when they saw him? They weren't doubters. They were believers. Well, the reason seems to be, note this, the reason seems to be nothing more than the fact that there were so many of them on that mountain, in case you're thinking there is no mountain there that can hold over 500. Yes, there is. I've been on a flat mountaintop in Galilee. It can certainly hold 500 people. So the reason seems to be nothing more than the fact that there were so many of them on that mountain, over 500, that some of them towards the back of this large group, you can imagine 500, there had to be some towards the back who could not get a good look at the figure standing in front of them and they couldn't tell if it was Jesus or not. And so they doubted whether or not it was actually the Lord who was on that mountain or someone else. Remember, most of these people had not seen Jesus yet in his resurrected body. And so they couldn't get a good visual of him. They were back in the crowd. Here's this figure in front of them. Is it Jesus? I, I don't know. I can't really see very well. There are other people in front of me. I, I don't know. I, I, he's raised from the dead. We hear this from others, but I, I don't know if it's him. Is it really him? That's why we read at the beginning of verse 18. And this is what brings us all together. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. The thought here, when it says he came up, is that he stepped forward. He came forward. He approached them. In other words, stepping forward, he gave them a closer look at himself. And then he spoke to them so that they could hear his familiar voice and know that it was really him and that they had no reason to doubt. And what did he say to them? As he's in the midst of this large assembly of brethren who could see him clearly now, he said the now famous words of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now this is the command, you know it well, this is the command we call the Great Commission. It is our Lord's authoritative charge, his order to his disciples to make other disciples. In other words, Jesus is telling them that as his disciples, I'm commanding you to make other disciples like you. And you do this by evangelizing the lost, those who come to faith in me, you baptize them, and then you teach them what I've taught you. You teach them the word of God. Now, this would eventually take some of these initial disciples all over the world 
evangelizing, but they would start. There has to be a place they started. They would start by being his witnesses right in their own backyard within the nation of Israel as they told their fellow Jews about the Messiah. And folks, that seems to be exactly the point that Jesus is making in Psalm 22 when he says prophetically in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. Meaning what? Meaning his Jewish brethren. And in the midst of the assembly, meaning what? Meaning the assembly of those who were on that mountain in Galilee, I will praise you. That's precisely what Jesus did. He appeared to this assembled group of Jewish believers after his resurrection in order to give praise to the Father for raising him from the dead and then commissioning them to go tell others about him. And where were they to start doing this? They were to begin by being witnesses to the Jewish people living within Israel, as the next verse indicates. Notice verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. This is a prophetic statement made by Jesus while still on the cross that following his resurrection, there would be Jewish people, sons of Abraham, who would hear the gospel message, believe it, and become his followers. This is why this verse refers to them as the descendants of Jacob and Israel and describes them as those who fear the Lord and praise him because they're believers, those who glorify him, those who stand in awe of him. These are Jewish Christians. Now, remember, it was a crowd of Jewish people in Jerusalem, led by their leaders who just a few weeks prior to this, they had cried out for Jesus to be crucified. But here we see a prophetic prediction that shortly after his death and then resurrection, there would be many, many Jewish people, some who had previously hated him and rejected him, who would now love him and believe on him. And that's exactly what happened. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, another form of the Great Commission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, even to the uttermost part of the earth. And this is what they did. They began witnessing, as I said, right where they were, And right where they were, yes, they were in Israel, but they were in the city of Jerusalem. That's where they were to begin. Then branch out to Judea. Jerusalem's in the province of Judea, then Samaria, and then leave Israel and go into all the world. But in Acts chapter 2 and the chapters that follow Acts 2, they tell us the results, what happened. I think you're familiar with this. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41. This is in response to Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. This is the formation of the church. This is the first church, the mother church, the church in Jerusalem, the infant church as well. Over 3,000 souls, meaning Jewish souls, saved. And what happened to them? Well, it says in verse 42 that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayer. That's a local church. Verse 46, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. Watch this. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This first church didn't stop with 3,000. It just multiplied and multiplied to the point, and you can read this in the book of Acts, chapter 4, chapter 5. In chapter 6, we're told that even some priests, Jewish priests who previously had despised Jesus, the priests were all Sadducees, they hated Jesus, thought of him as a, a fraud, some of them came to believe in him as the true Messiah. Listen, in the early days of the church, there were scores of Jewish believers in Israel, just as Psalm 22 had predicted. 
So the question for us is what, what happened? What was it that turned all of these Jewish people around so that whereas they once hated and rejected Christ, believing him to be a messianic phony who was cursed by God for his lies and deception, cursed by God by being hung on a tree, as the law said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's what they thought of him. Now, something's changed. Now they believe in him as the Messiah. Well, Jesus proceeds to tell us in the next verse, next verse in Psalm 22, why these Jewish people who once were so adamant about rejecting him, why they now came to believe in him. Notice verse 24. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Now listen closely. The essential meaning of this verse is that Jesus is explaining to the Jewish people the true interpretation of the cross. Prior to this, they interpreted the cross, as I said, as God despising Christ, God despising Jesus, God despising, punishing him, because they felt that he was such a terrible sinner They thought he was a scam artist who tried to pass himself off as the Messiah and Son of God. This is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but this is one of the prime reasons why Jesus was so despised by so many, the vast majority of Jewish people, because they felt that God despised him. And so they felt it was their moral duty to despise him as well. Here's what we read in Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4, about how the Jewish people despised him, but, but they turned around. God turned them around. He was despised and forsaken of men. This is Christ, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, verse 4, now they changed their tune. Surely our griefs himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him. This is what we thought at one time. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. They're saying, now we know differently. He wasn't smitten of God for anything he did. He was smitten of God for what we've done. They get it. These are converted Jewish people speaking like this. See, the vast majority of Jewish people in our Lord's day, they felt, as I said, that the crucifixion was God's just punishment and affliction for Jesus being such an evil person. And this is the reason why they they mocked him while he was on the cross, accusing him of having no faith, no relationship with God, even though he claimed to be the Father's beloved son. But the point of our Lord's statement in Psalm 22, verse 24, is that in witnessing to Jewish people, his disciples will explain the real meaning, the true meaning of the cross, that he was not despised by the Father, nor was he afflicted for anything that he had done wrong, nor did God hide his face from him because of any sin on his part. You see, they will explain that while on the cross, Jesus was treated this way, because in the words of Isaiah 53, he was pierced through. For their transgressions, he was crushed for their iniquities. And the proof of Christ's vindication is that in the end, while still on the cross, God heard him and promised to deliver him by raising him from the dead, and he was raised from the dead. Now, folks, that's what these verses are about. The question then, the questions that I have for you is, how does this affect us today? How does it apply to us? What practical truths do we find in these verses about Christ's resurrection and his first Jewish disciples winning some other Jewish people to faith in him? Well, there are a couple of important, what I would refer to as timeless principles and truths that are conveyed in these verses. You might want to write these down. First of all, we learn from Christ's cry of triumph concerning his resurrection that what really thrills his heart, what brings great joy to him, is the salvation of lost souls. 
See, what excited Jesus most about the prospect of his death wasn't the physical relief that he would finally experience so that he wouldn't be tortured like he was, but rather it was that his resurrection would result in the gospel being preached and lost souls being rescued from hell. That's what thrilled our Lord. That's what brought joy to his heart. This is why when he had all those post-resurrection meetings with his disciples, every time we read about them in the gospel accounts, specifically in Matthew and Luke and John, every time he meets with them, he commissions them in one way or another to be his witnesses, because that's what's dear on his heart. Listen, I want you to know that Jesus is thrilled. He was thrilled then. He continues to be thrilled now when lost souls come to faith in him. That's what thrills him. And he's told us this. We don't even have to wonder about this. He's told us this very clearly in Luke chapter 15. Notice what we read in verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining about certain people who were drawn to Christ. These were sinful people who were considered the lowlifes and the the dregs of Jewish society. And in response to the Pharisees and the scribes' complaints about these people being interested in him, the Lord proceeds to give three parables. And while their storylines may be different, they all have the same basic message. The message is this, God has joy. He rejoices. He's thrilled when just one sinner repents. So we don't have to go through all three of the parables, but just the first one, verses three through seven, you'll get the gist of the heart of God in saving people. So he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. My friends, joy and celebration is what describes God's heart when a sinner repents and is saved. Therefore, it ought to bring great joy to your heart and thrill your heart when you hear of people coming to know the Lord as their Savior. It ought to be the passion of your heart to try to lead people to faith in Christ, to pray for their salvation as God gives you opportunities to speak to them about Christ. This past week, Michelle and I have watched several YouTube videos of Stephen Lawson speaking about the evangelistic passion and the fervor of men, namely George Whitfield, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Charles Spurgeon. While each of these men were staunch, what we would call five-point Calvinists, they were convinced that Scripture teaches that only those sovereignly chosen by God will come to faith in Christ, yet, even believing that in election, yet they all were passionate about evangelizing the lost in preaching. They all were passionate about that. In fact, it was Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife who said, you'll never understand my husband unless you first understand that he was a man of prayer and an evangelist. Most of us think of Lloyd-Jones as an expositor to God's people, but his own wife said he was first and foremost a man of prayer and an evangelist. And yet Lloyd-Jones, like all these other men, correctly, biblically believed in election, that God has chosen those who will be saved, and yet they never allowed their belief in election to dampen their evangelistic passion. Likewise, we must never allow our belief in divine election and the sovereignty of God to extinguish our zeal for evangelizing the lost. Jesus commands us, not suggests, he commands us to proclaim the gospel. You proclaim the gospel from any 
place that God puts you in. It could be in the pulpit. It could be in a Sunday school class. It could be one-on-one with someone, someone you work with, someone you go to school with. It doesn't matter where it is, we are commanded to proclaim the gospel. And it still thrills him when a single sinner comes to repentance and faith in him. It was Spurgeon who said these words. He said, the glory of God being our chief object, we aim at it by seeking the salvation of sinners. I would rather be the means of saving a soul from death than be the greatest orator on earth. In fact, at that time, he, I think, was the greatest orator on earth. But he said he would rather be the means of saving one soul from death than being the greatest orator on earth. Listen, if Jesus is thrilled with the salvation of sinners, then we have to be just like that. We need to too. And if not, then something is wrong with us. Something is wrong in your relationship with Christ. Something is wrong in your heart. And you need to repent. And you need to ask the Lord to give you a burden and a love for souls. You need to ask him to give you his heart to share the gospel with the unconverted and to pray for them. I say again, if the salvation of sinners brings Christ pleasure, then it should bring us pleasure as well. Secondly, what we learn from our Lord's words on the cross about his resurrection and the gospel being preached that followed, resulting in the salvation of Jewish souls, is the absolute necessity of making sure that when we are witnessing to someone, we must explain the meaning of the cross. We have to. You see, those unsaved first century Jewish people, they had a complete misunderstanding of the cross of Christ. They thought he was despised by God. That's why he was dying such a terrible death. Likewise, there are many people today who have no understanding of the death of Christ, or they have some erroneous view of the death of Christ, or in this generation, they've never even heard of Christ. We have to explain the message clearly to them. We have to explain to them the meaning of the cross. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you don't explain the cross, you have not preached the gospel. And I say that on the authority of the word of God because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul contended for in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. He said, when I came to you, brethren, that is, when I came to you at Corinth, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, meaning I didn't come with man's philosophy. I put all my books away, all my learning from the university. I set it aside. I didn't come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't try to philosophize my way in explaining your need for Christ. For I determined, he said, to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all. Christ and the cross. Paul was resolute in proclaiming the truth about Jesus and his crucifixion. And that has to be what we're resolute about too. A number of years ago, there was a man in our church who was dabbling in some serious error about what exactly the gospel message is. In fact, after meeting with him several times, I couldn't even understand what it was, let alone an unbeliever understanding it. I didn't know what he was talking about. But after a lot of meetings and a great deal of discussion, our elders finally said to him, we preach Christ and him crucified. End of the argument. We preach Christ and him crucified. And folks, we must never deviate from the message of the cross, meaning we have to explain what it means that Christ died on the cross. While on the cross, he was dying as a substitute for sinners, being judged by the Father who is holy, judged in their place because of their sins, because God the Father is too holy to even look upon sin with favor. That's what our Lord's first disciples did when they witnessed to their fellow Jews. They carefully explained, no, 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 you've misunderstood his death was for us, not for himself. He was dying as our substitute because God is holy and we are not holy. And Christ was bearing the full wrath of the Father for our sakes. That's the same message we preach today. I ask you, do you know the meaning of the cross? If so, do you believe that Jesus died for you? I suspect most of you would say, well, of course I do. But I want you to know it's not enough to simply believe in your head that Christ died for you. It's not enough to simply know the facts 
Yes, you've, you've been raised in a Christian home. Some of you perhaps even go to a Christian school. You've gone to Sunday school class. You've heard the gospel from this pulpit many times. And you believe intellectually. You believe in your mind. You believe in the facts of the gospel. But that's not enough. You have to have that, but it's not enough. You must repent of your sin and place your heartfelt trust, your confidence, your reliance in Christ alone for your salvation. This is how one becomes a Christian. And this is what saves a soul from hell. And I trust that, that you will, that you'll think about this if you don't know him as Savior. But if you're already saved, then the question for you is this. Do you rejoice not only in your salvation, but in the salvation of others. When you hear about someone who claims to believe in Christ, your first thought is, well, I don't know how long that'll last because it could be a false profession. Or do you say, that's so exciting, I'm thrilled because God is rejoicing that someone who's lost has been found. Do you get excited when you hear someone's been rescued from their sins? Heaven rejoices, so should you. Do you have a concern for lost souls? If not, I'm going to give you an opportunity to speak to the Lord about it. I'm going to pray and then going to give you an opportunity to just be quiet before him, repent of any sin. It might be the sin of a cold heart towards lost souls. It could be some other sin. But this is a time for you to repent of your sin as you meditate on what you've heard. You think about Christ's death on the cross for you and what you need to do to conform to his word. So I'm going to pray and then give you a few moments of silence to meditate. Father, we thank you for what we've heard today. These are, these are deep truths, Lord. Your mind revealed to us. So, Lord, help us. Help us to be thrilled, to be excited, to rejoice with heaven when one soul comes to faith. Lord, may, may we never be calloused about that. Never take that for granted. We pray for those here who may not know you. They may know the facts about you, but they've never truly placed their trust in you for salvation. I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. And Lord, may we, when we proclaim the gospel to others, may we do it clearly, clearly articulating what the cross is all about. Now, Lord, hear us as we think about you, as we meditate, as we speak to you in prayer silently. So let's stand now as we close in prayer, and then you'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for what you've allowed us to study today. Lord, written so many years ago in the pen of David, yet inspired by you, your revelation to us, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that all these things you predicted have come to pass and continue to come to pass. And Lord, may we, as we leave this auditorium, have your word dwell richly in us so that we wouldn't forget it. As we go to lunch, help us to remember these things, help us to act upon these things, and thus to bring glory to you. And Lord, we do pray for those who are hurting in our congregation, that we'll be able to help them financially, give those who make decisions about this wisdom that we might dispense of these funds wisely and in a manner that would be godly and honoring to you. We do again pray, Lord, for anyone here who's never trusted Christ, that you would draw them to yourself. This we pray in your name. Amen.